When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, yes. I continue to say yes, yes. Really no reason, but uh, if it ain't broke, I suppose. But then again, do we even know that if it ain't broke? Uh, I'm Tim McKernan. Welcome to the Tim McKernan Show alongside uh, my producer, the great John Seymour, the Seamaster. Welcome in for yet another edition of uh, the program. And uh, I'm curious uh, what kind of reaction this show gets because I find this stuff to be uh, fascinating. And I think people do. But maybe I will find out that people actually don't. And that is uh, sports media topics. Um, and I really find media coverage to be fascinating, not because it's it's my my job, my profession, but more along the lines of political media and the direction it, it takes people's perceptions. And then when it gets down to sports media, some of the similarities I see with political media uh, playing out now in the sports media world. And so our guest for today's show is Brian Curtis, editor at large slash writer slash podcast host uh, on The Ringer. Uh, And we've had him on the Ryan Kelly morning after before. uh, But with the podcast, this allows me to kind of do, I don't know what we'll wind up talking. I think we wind up maybe like 30, 40 minutes, Uh, longer segments, longer interviews, and uh, we can kind of wander into various topics together as we've done with a variety of our guests so far. And if you have not subscribed to The Tim McKernan Show from whatever podcast platform you use based on the numbers we see, the vast majority of you are using iTunes. Subscribe, if you would. Uh, let's keep this momentum going. Please subscribe. And if you could be so kind to give it a positive review, please do so as well. That helps the cause. I'm learning these things. All I've been doing is television radio throughout my career. And now I'm learning about the importance of reviews and stars and all this stuff. So, Hey, uh, I'm not uh, too proud to beg. So please do so. Cause it'll help the, uh, the cause I'm sure as hell enjoying doing these things. And hopefully you're enjoying them as well as I always say, uh, email me, tmckernan at insidestl.com with feedback. I sincerely want it good, bad, whatever. But either way, uh, with with sports media, uh, specifically what has taken place over the last handful of days, uh, I find these stories to be fascinating. It's one of the things that Brian Curtis covers. And um, we initially talked, so this is kind of a two-parter, except we're doing the second part First, but I think it makes sense. Uh, the Seamaster and I had a philosophical discussion on this. Um, the, we initially sat down, Brian and I, to talk about Jamil Hill, um, the critique coming from President Trump, uh, from the White House, and then also the comments from the Athletics co-founder, uh, Alex Mather, uh, about bleeding newspapers, sports pages dry, and uh, his comments in the New York Times. Um, 
And then whether or not on-demand sports sites, people paying for content, getting content, whether it be podcasts or written content behind a paywall, if that was truly the way people would be getting sports media in the future, much less the present. So that's where we started. And then about three hours after Brian and I tape what will be part two, except it was part one. If you can follow this, it really doesn't matter. It's some moronic matrix that I'm laying out improperly verbally. But nonetheless, the, the Barstool ESPN breakup takes place. And I'm like, son of a bitch. It would have been really nice to have had this happen about four hours earlier. But when it happened, I'm like, I got to get Brian back on the line. So the Seamaster, being the Seamaster and the best in the business, immediately reaches out to Brian and so he's like, yeah, this is like one of the biggest stories, not just because of what took place with ESPN, John Skipper, their president particularly, uh, firing Barstool, parting ways, however you'd want her to describe it, after one episode of uh, Barstool uh, being on ESPN on that 12 a.m. Central time time slot on Tuesdays on ESPN2. But... What it means, and this is this is what I like to get into, and it, it might be just total moronic stuff, but I love thinking about the implications of it. And so the thing that fascinates me about what transpired with ESPN parting ways with Barstool, there's so many layers to it, uh, so many layers to this cat baby. And by that, I mean this. This doesn't happen without Sam Ponder's tweet. It just doesn't. Brian and I discussed this, but it just it just does not happen. And so it, it conveys not only Sam Ponder's juice at ESPN, Sam Ponder's power at ESPN. When it got down to it, John Skipper said, I'm going to choose the person we chose to replace Chris Berman on the NFL desk uh, over the show that might have a passionate following of 18 to 34, 18 to 45 uh, year old men that's airing at, at 12 a.m. Central Time once a week. We're going to choose that. And even though it might be a PR nightmare, we are going to choose her. And I think essentially that's what it got down to. But then secondarily, the impact, once again, something that makes me cringe, of what I describe as the Twitter pitchfork mafia, if you want to downplay it, social media. Whatever you want to call it, uh, I certainly call it the Twitter pitchfork mafia. Because what Skipper is saying is that over the week in between Sam Ponder's tweet and him parting ways with PFT and Big Cat of Barstool, uh, he learned more about, about Barstool's content. And there's two potential scenarios there. One, he's lying to cover what I said initially, which was he's choosing Sam Ponder over Barstool, which I, I get. Or two, there was not diligence paid to what Barstool has been doing in order to build their brand nationally, and they have done an outstanding job of building it. Either way, it's not a good good choice. But one of those things has to be the truth. One of those things has to be the truth. And so with that all said, where does this leave Barstool? You see, I, I tie it into the Ryan Kelly morning after. I was saying this on the Ryan Kelly morning after fan page. This would be the equivalent of pick whichever quote-unquote legitimate entity getting into business with the Ryan Kelly Morning After, a show that's been on the air for 13 years, and then we do what we do, 
And then there's some backlash from one person at said legitimate entities saying, oh, my God, I can't believe some of the things that Deke Dotem writes in. We must not have these people on our show, on our station. And then that, quote unquote, legitimate entity parts ways with the Ryan Kelly morning after crew. And we're like, we're just doing exactly what we've been doing for the last 13 years. Now, you might not like it, but to all of a sudden catch religion because of a backlash strikes me is disingenuous. And that's what I think happened here. I understand the spot they were in, but my overriding point would be this. Don't get into business with them if you're not willing to absorb the hell you're going to catch for it. So with that all said, that's what I wanted to get into with Brian Curtis. So once the news broke, we got into the barstool ESPN divorce And so that's the first part of it. Then we get into uh, what we initially talked about, which is Jamel Hill, the White House, President Trump, what her future is there. What is the future of the Sports Center show at 5 Central Time, known as The Six, because it airs at 6 Eastern with her and Michael Smith? What is the future of that? What is ESPN's social media policy? But again, looking big picture, this is the philosophical stuff I love to debate and discuss and attempt to try to understand. What should media, social media policies be in general? And is there any way to really truly legislate it? Would a policy be different for um, the main anchor, for a morning drive host, for an afternoon drive host versus, you know, somebody who's like the weekend guy doing something late at night or brokering time early in the morning, late at night, whatever the case might be. Uh, And it sure seems at this moment to be a case-by-case basis. And then also something that I think... You know, at this point, it might be early in the game, and I know that many people are paying attention to it, but what The Athletic is doing and what that means for sports writing in general, uh, what the impact of The Athletic is going to be on sports writing, I am curious to see how this plays out. And some of you might not even be aware of it. It's where Jeremy Rutherford of the Post-Dispatch now writes, uh, and I think the world of Jeremy Rutherford of the Post-Dispatch. Is this the model for sports writing going forward, or will it fail? And if and when it fails... Will this New York Times article in which one of the co-founders of The Athletic says they want to bleed newspapers dry, and then hours later he goes on to Twitter and apologizes for saying it, will that be considered a moment on the timeline that was defining for The Athletic in a negative way? Should it be even factored in? And Brian and I discuss how The Athletic initially came out kind of being like, this is the last bastion for true journalism. There won't be any advertising on here, and this is this is where corporations can't ruin sports journalism, this is where you go pull for us, pull for the underdog. And then a month later, they're in the newspaper, in New York Times, talking about how they want to bleed everybody dry. So uh, will that uh, play poorly for The Athletic or will it simply uh, just be a part of a story for a business model that uh, a lot of sports media consumers weren't ready for? Or will it be nothing and The Athletic winds up thriving? All of these questions are pondered. And I'm anxious to see what the download numbers are on this because I find this stuff to be fascinating, but maybe I'm on my own little island on this stuff. It does seem like, however, when we talk about sports media issues on the Ryan Kelly Morning After, people love and go, I love when you talk about that. I wish you'd do it more. So I'm trying to give the people what they want. And that's what Brian Curtis and I discuss here on this edition of the Tim McKernan Show. As I also always say on the program, make sure you support the sponsors. Because uh, without the sponsors, this this does not exist. And I want to make sure we thank our studio sponsor on The Tim McKernan Show, Ryan Kelly, online at thehomeloanexpert.com. Now, we're based out of St. Louis, but I know many of you are listening 
uh, around the country and around the region, and that means Ryan Kelly can also help you. He is growing his business because he does business the right way. You can see for yourself at thehomeloanexpert.com or call 1-800-991-6494. That's 1-800-991-6494. Check him out for yourself, thehomeloanexpert.com. I can speak firsthand. Um, My sister, when she bought her home, I said, hey, this is the person to go to. I know this is your first home. This is the person to go to. I don't even think twice about it. You don't need to think twice about it. Ryan Kelly, the home loan expert online at the home loan expert.com 1-800-991-6494. No one works harder than Ryan Kelly and no one does business better when it comes to your mortgage than Ryan Kelly. 1-800-991-6494 or go online at thehomeloanexpert.com. So this is the way you're going to hear the Brian Curtis. It's totally, it's 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 like watching Godfather Part 2. One minute there's, there's Robert De Niro, then the next thing you know, there's Al Pacino, but they're both Corleones. Here, here, here we have Brian Curtis and I talking uh, initially um, about something that airs uh, second, but we start off with something that we recorded uh, after the news broke regarding Barstool and ESPN. In the whole scheme of things, it probably doesn't matter to you, but I'm just very uh, self-conscious about the whole thing. So Brian Curtis of The Ringer and me talking about three sports media topics, and we start things off with Barstool and ESPN. So seeing this news regarding uh, Barstool and ESPN, what was right when you saw it, what was your first reaction? I thought it would happen at some point, but probably not so soon. Yeah, I, I, uh, it was it was a marriage <laughs> that didn't seem like it was going to last. But I didn't think they. I thought they'd make it more than one episode. What an odd uh, line from John Skipper, like how he went out of his way to first hand, uh, first person singular I uh, take responsibility for this in the statement, and then also the timing. I thought was odd. I felt like. If they knew they wanted to do this, then you would do it kind of on a Friday afternoon news dump as opposed to Monday midday afternoon. Uh, so I wonder if something transpired over the weekend. What, do you have any understanding as to what was the final straw? No, I think he probably just got enough calls and emails and things like that and got to a point where, you know, Monday morning said, that's it, you know, yeah. and pulled the plug and they called Barstool and moved as quickly as they can because, of course, they had a show that was being put together for Tuesday night. Right. So that would be my best guess, that it just got to a point. And of course, you, you still had the Samantha Ponder thing. You know, that was really the the you know sort of bracing or shocking thing of her coming out on Twitter before the first episode, and essentially saying these, you know, so much of what Barstool is not not these two guys, but the but the mothership is you know there's a lot of misogyny there, and it's mm-hmm. been directed at me, and I don't like it. And I think you know she is a huge star over there at ESPN. When you have a huge star publicly going after. Your new hires like that. I don't know what you do. I listened to your uh, podcast uh, regarding this story uh, yesterday. Of course, you can follow Brian at uh, at Brian Curtis, Brian with a Y for the record, and and and, and heard your thoughts uh, on Dave Portnoy's response. Um, for those who haven't had a chance to hear what you said in your podcast, what did you think of the emergency press conference and his thoughts? <laughs> Well, it's funny. He calls an emergency press conference whenever there's a barstool controversy. So he has no shortage of emergency press conference. 
<laughs> you basically do one every day. <laughs> you know, I think it was. I mean, look, he at some level, I'm sure they wanted the you know the barstool management wanted the partnership with ESPN to work, but it's great material for him, right? Because their whole their whole thing is geared toward we're the only ones telling the truth. Everyone else in the world is encumbered by political correctness, and and this is you know he said he had a line like this is why we need barstool, yeah, because you know ESPN. Well, ESPN is sensitive to the needs of their female employees, I guess, and we're not. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that was literally the answer. He also had an interesting line where he said, ESPN needs us more than we need them. I think that's debatable, but I think that is an interesting sort of question that's at the crux of this. Why did ESPN feel they needed to bring these guys in? Mm-hmm. They really feel they needed that big a jolt, risking all the considerable downside that we now see that they, they got. You know, I'm sort of of the opinion that ESPN has lots of interesting, funny, silly, strange young employees of their own that they could probably tap to, to come up with late night shows or OTT shows or, you know, just find find goofy outlets for podcasting or whatever. And I'm not sure they needed this marriage to begin with. Yeah, a couple big picture questions on it. Also in Portnoy's uh, emergency press conference, a line that uh, really got some backlash that was just kind of like slipped in was something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here for the record, of, you know, we may just have to alter uh, the way that we provide content and charge uh, stoolies for the content. Um and that, that got a lot of negative reaction, and it was kind of like it was a seven-and-a-half-minute press conference, but it was kind of like at the sixth minute, it was just like a five-second thing, but it was, it was substantial. In other words, because, and I don't know if I'd necessarily buy this from a financial standpoint, but perhaps it's the case, I, I don't know their financials, but because the ESPN partnership has been eliminated, and because they clearly are going to have to remain a standalone product and not be in business with a larger network, that they may have to charge uh, their patrons for content uh, so as to be able to continue to be real. Um, did you catch that? And if so, what were your thoughts on it, Brian? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'd put too much stake in it because, you know, his sort of stream of consciousness speaking style um, is not one that I think you can maybe take too many solid pronouncements away from. You know, I thought it was interesting that Stoolies, as you mentioned, will will accept any number of things, but they won't accept a paywall. Right. <laughs> That's where they draw the line. You, know, well, you can say anything you want, but we won't have to, have to pay for it. I just think, you know, that that would really surprise me. I think the whole, we talked a little, as we talked about the athletic, right. I think there's so many, I just think a paywall in 2017 is such a dicey proposition. Doesn't mean it won't work, but I just think it's a tough, it's a tough hurdle. And, and that whole business is, is, you know, based on we're kind of open source, we're around, we're, you know, we do everything, we throw up inter- we throw up random, you know, videos and all this kind of stuff, and I don't know. Can you put a paywall in front of that? I'm not sure. And the Sam Ponder tweet, from my standpoint, is, the, is when it gets down to it, the reason this happened. Would you agree with that? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I'm just like I said. You're putting one of a person. I mean, she she got Chris Berman's job, right? Which means you're which means you're a big deal inside the network, and you put up one of your big stars and says, "I don't like this," and and not and doesn't go to John John Skipper and email him about it, but goes straight to Twitter about it. I mean, that's that's pretty dramatic. And you know, I think she was trying to blow it up, and I think she did. And so, along those lines, with ESPN taking action, the Sam Ponder tweet essentially being the cause, not the sole cause, but the largest cause of this, in our opinions, 
what does it say for ESPN's PR management that Skipper's statement, he takes sole responsibility and says he became more aware of Barstool's content over the last week. Do you buy that or is it essentially falling on the sword, knowing it's going to be a debacle and choosing to fall on the sword for eliminating a 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. Eastern show and keeping the stars such as Sam Ponder happy uh, by parting ways with Barstool? I suspect there's some falling on the sword, but I but I I think that's pretty much what happened. You know, you don't think again, he knew I, about Barstool's content before this he, all blew up? Well, so I think he knew about it, but I think he, he 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 what he did is what a lot of people thought could happen, which is you carve out the two nice Barstool guys, you know, the harmless Barstool guys, right? <laughs> and that they can exist without this, you know, tether to the mothership. And what ESPN realized pretty quickly is that every time Portnoy says something, people are going to come to them, either their own employees or the press is going to come to them and say, what about this? What about this? How can you condone being in business with these guys? I didn't think they, I think they thought that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah. I think they thought, oh, we're going to have our two guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, when I wrote about this way back when, uh, and I broke the story about Barstool coming to ESPN, yep. I, didn't even, I didn't even put that in the piece because I thought that those guys were such a kind of jolly, harmless brand on their own that maybe they could pull it off, and clearly that was wrong. I thought the but, show, you know, of course there's only one episode, so we can analyze it to death. We have 22 minutes of content, but I thought it was pretty damn good. What do you think? I think for something put together that quickly, they did a decent job. Absolutely. You, and I saw Portnoy say felt, they might be picked up. Do you think that'll happen? I don't know. I don't know where I it would it, air. I don't know where it would air. That's that's you, you know kind of you know they've tried Comedy Central right with a suit show before the Super Bowl. The ratings were not great after the first episode. I think. I don't know. I mean, to me, the bigger question for Barstool is, do you need these outside companies, mm -hmm. right? Do, or do you just, can in this age, can you just do everything inside? You know, I look at our experience with The Ringer, you know, when we do a video, we're going to do a video, right? We're going to do a show. We're going to do a Twitter show. We're going to do a podcast. Like, that's the question for all these companies is how much do you go chase those kind of partnerships versus just doing what you want to do in-house and saying, come to us. And if you do do those partnerships, I think this is the one thing that, those on the inside, so to speak, and those in this business would agree with, if you do do those partnerships, then no matter what, and I think people knew this going into it, but the lesson of what we just saw play out over the last week is no matter what, even if it's a licensing deal and you're not necessarily employees, you are still at the mercy of the proverbial mothership, whether that be ESPN or another mothership. Absolutely. And if your brand is, we don't take orders from anybody, uh, and we don't play by anybody's rules, then, you know, playing by somebody's rules is, you know, creates some kind of static there, right? Yeah. And and that's sort of <laughs> that's pretty much how this played out. When it's all said and done, is this good for Barstool or bad for Barstool? I think it's good from, it's good from the short-term content you know, perspective. Yeah, there's going to be some just, good entertainment. It just reminds me whenever, you know, somebody would, whenever the FCC would get mad at Howard Stern, you know, that'd be great business for him, right? Because uh -huh. he'd, you know, do a protest in front of the building and <laughs> how dare they, how dare they censor me. They won't let you hear the truth and all this stuff. I mean, uh, that, that'll, that flame will burn for days over there. Um, you know, I think it probably, in a way, it probably scales down some of their ambitions of doing things outside. I mean, clearly they wanted to be in business with ESPN. And I think, you know, if ESPN cancels on them because they get squeamish about working together, I think that's, you know, then the next media company you go to, you're going to have to convince them that they're, you know, they're going to have to be convinced not to be squeamish. Yeah. And I think that's tough now that that, that idea is out in the world.
Brian, appreciate it, sir. On short note, this was our version of an emergency. I heard you had an emergency podcast. This is our emergency podcast about your emergency <laughs> podcast about the emergency press conference. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you, Barstool, for, for just, you know, emergency, for, for birthing emergency media across the country. I love it. <laughs> appreciate it, brother. Thanks, man. You know, I say it, and I say it, and I say it, and I say it, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's the name of the game, and that is the sponsors of the program. Without the sponsors, the program does not exist. So please make sure when you have an opportunity to patronize the sponsors of the show that you do so. And James Carlton, James Carlton Agency of State Farm, is one of the first people to contact me about wanting to sponsor this show. A massive team of seven, a massive team of seven that he has at the James Carlton Agency. And I went by and I met everybody and saw firsthand what he has going on. You have to have insurance already. Why not make the switch to a local business that's a supporter of this here presentation and of the local community and also represents the number one company in the industry? It's the James Carlton Agency. Text quote, Q-U-O-T-E, to 314-961-4800. That's 314-961-4800. And one of those team members will reach out, or you can visit carltoninsurance.net. The James Carlton Agency has achieved the Chairman's Circle two years in a row. Now, I would imagine the vast majority of you are like, I have no idea what that is. I have no idea why you're telling me. And if you are going to tell me, tell me why I should care. Well, I'll tell you this. Two years in a row, Chairman's Circle, James Carlton Agency. What does it mean? It's the Lombardi Trophy of State Farm agents, and only two agencies in all of the St. Louis area can say that. Well, the James Carlton Agency is one of those State Farm agents who can say it. That's what his agency does. That is why he is having the success he is having. Text QUOTE to 314-961-4800. That's QUOTE to 314-961-4800. Or check him out at carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, then call James Carlton State Farm. So, Brian, you wrote the story on the Jamil Hill situation with ESPN. And there's so many elements of this story that fascinate me, whether it be sports, sports media, political ramifications, Donald Trump. There there are so many layers to it. You seem to have some contacts inside of Bristol uh, that give you an indication of where things stand. And in your story on The Ringer, uh, it sounds like the relationship that perhaps one would on the outside looking in think may be very cold between Jamel and ESPN executives actually is not that way. Is is that an accurate portrayal? Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's a fairly accurate portrayal. I think the the thing to remember is there's two different questions here, right? Is what does Jamel Hill want to do with the rest of her career, and how does she personally feel about John Skipper, who's been a guy who's been her champion for a number of years at ESPN, right? You can love your boss and at the same time conclude this isn't the place for me to be, mm-hmm. you know, not because of, because you know my boss can only do so much, or my boss is running a giant television network that's got to kind of thread the needle politically and, and not going to allow me to say things exactly the way I want to say them. So I wouldn't read too much into that in terms of what it, what her future is going to be, but I would say that they, as they talk about this and figure out what she's going to do, they start in a pretty good place. So in your opinion, how will they handle her relationship and that show? Let's say three months from now. 
You know, it's a really good question. I mean, I think a lot of, they have to answer a lot of questions about the show that I think have been kind of kicked down the road a little bit. This was a show that came on the air February 6th, day after the Super Bowl. Now, that's a bad time to start a sports studio show because you don't have any football, right, <laughs> for like six months. You know, your programming is just tougher to do. But, you know, a lot of people inside ESPN and outside ESPN told me they just never came up with a great concept for the show. They loved Michael and Jamel. They loved the idea of reinventing the 6 p.m. Sports Center like they did the Midnight Sports Center with Scott Van Pelt, but they didn't have the elevator pitch of what this is going to be. And so, you know, at the outset, you had them debating a lot. At the end, now you have them doing kind of a lot of newsy elements, and nobody, I think, has a great sense of what it is. And so I think the big, the first thing they've got to do, outside of all the Trump stuff, the social media stuff, is what's this show going to be, and how do we find someone in Bristol, either a coordinating producer type or an executive type, who can translate that vision and figure out what we're going to do with us. Do you think that Jamel and Michael will shy away from it going forward, or do you think they will actually address it? Oh, I think they want to address it. I think, you do you know, think they'll be allowed to address it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, I think... On the air. Rec- oh, are you talking about the, tr- the, the suspension? The, the suspension, the social media elements... It's, you know, it's not ESPN style. Look, right. if you had the president of the United States attack your sports host, what would you do the next day if you wanted to gain maximum ratings? You talk about it. <laughs> it's have Michael, Jamel's friend, co-host say, Jamel, how did it feel to be attacked like uh-huh. that? Or can you explain what you were trying to say on social media that, you know, got everybody so hot and bothered? They didn't do that. They've never done that. She ran. She wrote one column for the undefeated. They really didn't address the Trump stuff, but it was really about you know her feelings and her feelings toward her colleagues. I mean, I just think that's not ESPN style at all. MSNBC would be on the air the next day. I would. I, 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 I liked this quote that you had in your story on the Ringer. The tension, and this is from an ESPN employee. The tension is not that they want to be apolitical. The tension is that they want to be fashionably political. They want to be Oscar speech political. I thought that summed it up really well. In, in other words, it doesn't really get into the nuance. It just gives kind of echo chamber applause lines. That's how I took that quote. What did you take that quote? To yeah, mean? exactly. I mean, that's the difference between saying, you know, doing kind of a funny burn on Trump on Twitter and calling Trump actually a white supremacist, as Hill did, right? You can do the first thing on ESPN and probably be fine because everybody there, you know, there's a lot of people there. I won't say everybody, but a lot of people there are generally, you know, lefty or anti-Trump. I mean, you can certainly find lots of people who share that viewpoint. Twitter right now is a lot of anti-Trump sentiment, even among the sports media. But once you sort of get into here, we're getting into real stuff here. We're getting into white supremacist, bigot, words like that. That is not what ESPN feels comfortable with, and I don't believe they'll ever feel comfortable with. Even if you know it's not a network-wide policy, but just one person saying it, they just that's where they put the brakes on. Taking a bigger picture view and kind of observing the last couple of decades of sports media, I feel like the country uh, was divided uh, at, at major times throughout the President George W. Bush administration, uh, divided at times during President Obama's administration. And then, of course, what we have going on with President Trump's administration right now. Why do you think this has now entered into the sports arena? I think it entered into the sports arena before Donald Trump was was talking about the NFL protests. Do, do you agree with that? And if so, what do you see as the impetus? 
Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a long runway. To me, I really, my ears really perked up when you had issues like the Redskins name and whether that should, should continue to exist here in the 21st century, or even issues like whether college athletes should be paid. All of a sudden, if you read sports media Twitter, you had massive consensuses, you know, massive consensus for both for positions on that issue. Lots of people taking positions, right? In the old days, you would have had a couple of columnists at your local newspaper being able to weigh in on that stuff. Now, basically, you have everyone. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest thing um, is that we're all columnists now. We all have Twitter accounts. We all have opinions about politics, stuff you never would have known about sports writers and sports anchors 10, 15 years ago, where they stood on all those things. So one, you give them the tools to express their opinion. Then Trump comes along, right? That's the accelerant. That's not That doesn't cause all this, but that also takes us all to a new level. And then now it's what you see on Twitter and everything else, and Jamel being a very prime example of it. Do you think that this stuff's going on 15 years ago if Twitter's around? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, just think, I just think people in this business have always had opinions. They just didn't have the form to share it, you know? If you worked at a newspaper and you were like, I'm going to weigh in on, you know, the Iraq war in, in, my, uh, in my Padres uh, game story, <laughs> that wasn't going to work. <laughs> but the guy writing that game story now is free to weigh in, right? Mm -hmm. In his off hours, more or less. And so that's, that's, that creates a situation. You also write that uh, even though that this has been a source of consternation for ESPN executives, some of ESPN employees have actually liked it because it now has given them an idea of, in some capacity, at least, what the social media policy that does leave it open to case-by-case -case basis judgment, and now it gives them an idea of at least where one line is. Are you clear on what the ESPN social media policy is? No, and I, and, I don't, and I don't think it's just ESPN. I think it's just about every media organization's social media policy. You've seen the New York Times just release a new policy in the last couple of days, mm -hmm. because all of a sudden, their reporters are tweeting about Trump in a very different way. And it's not even just an obvious partisan you know, you stink, you're not my president kind of way. It's just like, wait a second, is the sick burn, which is basically, the, as far as I could tell, the currency of Twitter, right, where you come in <laughs> on top of somebody and reply to their tweet, is that okay if you're a reporter, if it's kind of just like a, a factual thing, not a partisan thing? Is that okay to, do, to be a New York Times reporter and do that? Is it okay to kind of, you know, joke about Mitch McConnell and other people who you may be covering in this kind of gallows humor kind of way? And I think the, the answer to the, all these questions is, who knows? And you'll ne you're never going to be able to articulate a policy that is going to encompass every tweet. So I think at the end of the day, you put out some general guidelines, but it always comes down to case by case. What, what is the vibe around ESPN from the people with whom you speak regarding this situation and being in the crosshairs of, of President Trump? So that's a very interesting question. I think there was, I got a text from an ESPN host um, when Trump went after Jamel Hill, and the host just said, you know, this is kind of scary, because I think ESPN's not used to being in an adversarial relationship with the White House in the way something like the New York Times or Washington Post would be, right? Those people are used to being in a, in a low-grade war or high-grade war, in this case, with powerful officials. That's just not the case at ESPN. I think the other thing is, though, that a lot of people within the Bristol mothership don't really want to go there. Again, they're probably people you'd put in the fashionably political category. Mm -hmm. um, they want to be on television, and they want, they're want they ambitious, and they want to succeed, and they're not going to put something on their Twitter account that's going to get in the way. You know, I mean, they're just, for them, their career and reporting on sports and, and succeeding at ESPN is more important than, you know, going to the barricades on these issues. 
So I think a lot of them kind of look at Jamel. Uh, they're sympathetic to her. They're friendly with her. But it just doesn't affect them because they're never going to say something like that on Twitter. Right. It's not in their nature. Brian, we, we also wanted to get your perspective on a few other topics in sports media. And one that, that I've been fascinated with, because I was interested in doing it here locally in St. Louis, and then The Athletic just swept everything up, is these on-demand, on-demand sports media sites. Uh, and in a New York Times piece, uh, the executives from The Athletic uh, say the following, quote, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last ones standing. We will suck them dry of their best talent at every moment. We will make business extremely difficult for them. End quote. That comes from Alex Mather, the co-founder of The Athletic. Uh, first off, just your general impression of whether or not these sites are the future. And then secondarily, specific to The Athletic, uh, their co-founder, saying that regarding local sports papers. I think it's a totally different message than they were founded with. Yeah. Um, you know, this, these were founded in a way as kind of an arc of displaced sports writers. We went through all those awful layoffs at the beginning of the year. Lots of people who were well-liked suddenly found themselves without an outlet, and the athletic comes along and says, look, we're giving your favorite sports writers a job. We're putting together, you know, some local sites, some kind of national things around college sports, college football, college basketball, and stuff like that. That is a very different message than we're gonna we're gonna kill your local newspaper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, that sounds like the venture capitalists are speaking. It's time to make some money. Yeah, I mean that's just an incredibly ugly confrontational message to me. But you know. I guess more power to you, and it also kind of puts, to me, the athletic. You know, when I when you read those writers' tweets and when you read their stuff, they're you know, it's always, hey, root for us, right? We're the underdog here. We're we're the ones that are trying to, you know, get a foothold in this in this business that's crumbling around us. So that that's really really surprising to me. Is it the future? I still just am, I still am skeptical. You know, when you look at the Bay Area one, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, what they went out and did is hired just about everybody you know who covers the Warriors. <laughs> you know, They're like okay, we got to get Anthony Slater, we're going to get Tim Kawakami, we're going to get Marcus Thompson, we're going to get all these guys who are known as Warriors guys. Warriors are one of the most popular teams in the country. Well, that to me gives the site an identity. I'm a Warriors fan. I'm, 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 this is kind of a national team. Maybe I'll pay a few bucks for this. I, I could imagine that with the Dallas Cowboys, you know, with a couple of handful of franchises around the country. If you just tell me we are local sports and you're going to pay five dollars, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering who is the big personality you're paying for there? Mm-hmm. Who is the can't miss person? Are you going to put down put down the money early on, give it a shot? Sure. Are you going to follow through with it? I don't know. You know, and I don't say that as a as a knock to them. I just don't know in this day and age whether people are sort of wired like that, That's especially what, young people. You know, I when I was thinking about doing it, this was, th- and I was talking with uh, DK in Pittsburgh, who has certainly done it, yeah, successfully there, and and I feel like that was the model that if it was going to work, it would work. Whereas the athletic struck me, at least at the time, that their model was more feature based. And while I'm all for features, I don't know if that would necessarily drive traffic. 
So I had that philosophical question mark. And then secondarily, of course, the main one was, is, was would the business model work? And then I pulled some of our listeners um, and overwhelmingly, shockingly to me, especially since our listeners are in their t- mainly in their 20s and 30s, uh, they they said they absolutely would not. And even though it's only $3.99 or $4.99 yeah. per month, they said they would not pay for sports media content. And I truly was surprised. I'm talking about, like I said, 95%. That surprised me. I figured it would kind of be a no-brainer if you got the people they enjoyed reading. So in a way, I almost feel like I dodged a bullet. Meanwhile, The Athletic is pumping out their chests. And I'm just not sure... A, it is working, and only they have access to their financials, but B, it's going to work. Yeah, I just think, I just wonder, you know, what's the, and look, I, I, I generalize for myself as a consumer, right? Obviously, I, I love reading all this stuff, and I'm like, what's the moment I'm going to pay? You know, I often think of that, I'm from, I'm from Dallas, so I follow the Cowboys and all that stuff. I think, what, do I need to pay for the Dallas newspaper? Right. If it's not free, mm-hmm. do I really need to pay to get that cowboy stuff, or can I just kind of get it by osmosis from lots of other places, including, by the way, sports radio? Right. Um, I just don't know what the what the trigger point there is, and I and I don't know if you're going to do it. It does feel like a weird time, 2017, right? You know, in a way, we're paying for a lot more things. Probably, we're paying for Netflix and Hulu and all these other things, but. It doesn't seem like we're really paying for much more in the way of journalism. Maybe mm-hmm. the New York Times. You know, I feel like when the way the New York Times and the Washington Post have done such a great job getting subscribers is because people are really interested in Trump. You know, they're really interested in politics right now. They want to know everything. They want to know everything they possibly can. But I think the other, and by the way, the other problem with the Athletic. Let's say you have a hot column or a really great story. Well, what happens if it's behind a paywall? You can't pass it around and get more subscribers. So I also think that's a that's one of those things that holds them back too. Right now, it strikes me as something that some people got together and thought, "Man, there's an opportunity here," but didn't really play out the hand. And I'm just not sure that it's going to be sustainable. It was like a venture capitalist land grab. Let's get in as many markets with as big a name as we can. We'll spend a bunch of money. But if there is no cash coming in. These guys aren't doing it for the love of the game of journalism. They're doing it for an opportunity for profits. And, hey, I have no problem with that. I just don't think that people are really getting all that excited about the product. And then, like you said, if they were, it's like, oh, let's give it a chance. Let's cheer for sports journalism. And then you have their founders saying, we will bleed every paper dry. That doesn't, that doesn't really work with the narrative. Yeah. By the way, and by the way, it's great in the short term for the journalists who are involved. You know, yeah. I, I tell every journalist now. I said, think of your career in three-year increments if you're lucky, <laughs> because by that point, your your you know publication may have pivoted to video or gone out of business altogether. But you know, I assume a lot of these people are being being paid pretty good money. Uh, in cases, some cases, they're being rescued from being laid off mm-hmm. or put out in ways. And and hey, great, you know, enjoy it and and write great stuff while you have it and you know, enjoy having the platform. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that wholeheartedly because I know some people who have gone there and I certainly want them to be successful, which is why I'm worried about what I think would be a potential problem for this thing a year, three years down the road. But as you mentioned, if they're getting a raise now, great. The thing that I wonder about for our industry is if it fails, then will the follow-up be, well, that failed. So you know that that style does not work. And I don't necessarily think they both are under the same umbrella. Like I said, I think what DK is doing in Pittsburgh works, whereas I wonder if what The Athletic is doing 
is a formula that will work, and therefore I won't label the whole style of on-demand media and paying for subscriptions as a failure just because The Athletic would not wind up working. Sure, sure. There's lots of ways to do this, right? And there's also lots of ways to enter this market without doing it behind a paywall. This is just the way they've chosen, mm-hmm. you know? There's another way where you hire lots of young, hungry, cheap people, right, instead of giving newspaper and old media veterans a raise. And, you know, you have them aggregate, you have them do podcasts, you figure out creative ways to to kind of put them into a sports scene. There's also ways to do it, by the way, the national local thing, you know? I'm just you know, the other. By the way, the other the, the smaller thing about this is I think the way people consume sports locally is changing too. You know, I'm a dyed in the wool Dallas Fort Worth sports guy. Those are all my teams. I will never change and all that stuff. But you know, I think and I want information about them certainly. But I think our viewing habits, thanks to satellites, thanks to the internet, thanks to fantasy, thanks to everything, have changed probably. And that kind of local hyper-local kind of coverage certainly exists on sports radio, but I just wonder if that's going to exist in quite the same way, you know, 2018, 2019, down the road. So how do you find yourself accessing content on the Cowboys and and all your Dallas teams? Well, you know, I'm to say five years ago. um, You know, I probably like what, you know, probably read the the combination of um, the newspapers and also ESPN's local sites. Remember Mm. those? Yeah. By the way, another cautionary tale for this whole thing. Absolutely. Because they really came in and had the power of ESPN. They hired people away from the newspapers, right? Mm -hmm. Probably gave them raises, gave them a lot, certainly a higher profile. There was no paywall, correct? There was no paywall, and all of a sudden ESPN backed the heck out of that. And partly it was because ESPN realized, like, I don't know if there's a market to send somebody on the road with the Texas Rangers, as sad as that is, Mm -hmm. right? That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And even if the guy writes awesome gamers... 162 times a year, is that going to pay for itself? You know, is that going to be a thing? And, yeah, that scares me, too. So, you know, much of what we've talked about here in in 20 minutes or so has been on some of the issues facing, uh, whether it be sports media anchors or sports media writers, and then also sports media businesses. So I'm sure some people are listening to this. Maybe they have sons, maybe themselves, sons or daughters, maybe themselves considering going into sports media. What would you say to somebody who is considering going into sports media, say they're in college right now or, you know, considering it as is in their 20s, whatever the case might be, when you hear kind of cautionary tale headlines such as these? A couple of things. One is that my, I was, uh, I'm the son of a high school counselor. And when I was going into this at the you know ancient time of the late 90s, my mom was showing me the salary scale for sports, for uh, media and journalism and saying, now, Brian... You're going to make like $18,000 a year if you be a journalist. But if you're going to be an astronaut or a lawyer or whatever, you know, you'll make this much. She had like actually a chart. Um, and I showed her because my first job, I made 13000 I didn't even make 18000 as a journalist. So I'm not sure that there was some, you know, boom times where it was, <laughs> come come get rich, sonny boy. You know, this is, this is what a business this is. I think the biggest thing in my career and that I tell people is, Almost every place I've ever worked in the almost 20 years I've been in the business didn't exist when I was in college. I mean, literally, the publication did not exist. Wow. And so the answer is come in, but with the understanding that it's going to be unpredictable. You know, you no longer can grow up saying, hey, man, someday I want to write for Sports Illustrated, or someday I want to be a sports center anchor, because those things might not exist in the same way anymore when mm-hmm. you grow up. Yeah. Um, there's, I believe there'll be plenty of opportunity. I believe it's the best business in the world, but I believe we may not be able to quite have a grip on what you will actually be doing and in what form 
uh, five years and 10 years down the road. Boy, isn't that amazing? I mean, that's the truth. I mean, I, I went to the University of Missouri Journalism School. It sounds like we're around the same age. Uh, should have graduated in 98, still have eight credit hours left. Not sure if I'm going to get them or not. I would bet against <laughs> it at this point. I would short that. Uh, and I and I focused on sports television. That's what I did. And, and first job was out of Little Rock, 22,000 for the record. Uh, so I clipped you by nine. Uh, which, there you is, go. which is huge for me. And then, then I went and I was lucky enough to get to my hometown at the age of 23 as an anchor. Uh, and now I would have, they could, I don't, I don't say they could offer me anything. First off, I know it wouldn't be enough anyway, but it's like the local television anchoring that I was taught at the University of Missouri is, it's not that it's dead, but my God, it's certainly dying. I was a freak when I was 23 here in St. Louis, and now I don't know if there are any people starting out who are over the age of 25. You know, <laughs> that's the way that the business has gone just like that in less than 20 years. Yeah, and it's funny, right, because you can get the same job that you or I were, you know, salivating after, you know, 20 years ago, but it's not the same job, right? Mm-hmm. You're exactly you could right. be the you know, columnist of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, but it's not the same way. It's not the same column job, right. you know? It's not the same job that somebody had 20 years ago right? Uh, in the same way. And, you, you know, also, you know, the way you just see people moving between, you know, not you know newspapers and sports radio was the old one and now it's sports radio and podcasting right or mm-hmm. or you know kind of these weird hybrid jobs where we write we podcast we do web video we do everything so i just the young version of us i don't know what they would mean you know, in your case probably they're just you know on on youtube somewhere right? <laughs> <laughs> i have no <laughs> have I mean, i'm certain i would have been laid off if i would have stayed there but i saw it dying and i left in 2005 and started up my own website and i was doing radio as well unfortunately that was a, a better gig from a compensation standpoint and also i didn't have to work weekends and nights and holidays because i was the number three guy in the sports <laughs> department and so all of that was great and then you wonder okay what's the next play you, you see like uh you know what got a lot of attention was fox sports bailing on its written content and going to video i'm not sure that that's the the play what do you do you think that that's gonna have staying power do you think that that's gonna be a another oh crap we tried it but it didn't work out thing yeah just again generalizing from my own experience who's watching that stuff i know like, that's what, what i want when have you ever clicked on a video that's not a highlight on the internet, you know, just like, I mean, I'm sure I have a, you know, dozen times, but I just think with the video thing, there's just not a model for it yet. Maybe, you know, what those, what those vice sports people are doing, you know, you see, you know, that's kind of cool and kind of gorilla and kind of, you know, you can kind of, but still very professional, obviously, because it's on, it's on television, but I just don't see a lot of that kind of stuff. No, I don't, I don't know what, I don't understand that at all. I still don't get what that was about. Are you bullish on podcasts? Yeah. As, we, as we talk on a podcast, are you bullish on podcasts? I was about to say, they, they seem to be paying the bills everywhere. Yeah. And as a lifelong fan of sports radio, I love it because it often is what I love about sports radio and doesn't have what I don't love about sports radio. It's like Netflix ads. for sports radio. You yeah, can pick the episodes my, you want to watch. The episodes you want to watch doesn't have the, the ads and the tickers and all the other things that, you know, have were pretty awesome 20 years ago. We may need slightly less or have slightly less tolerance for now, you know. But it's just kind of that pure conversation, smart people talking. I also feel you can just kind of cut to the essence of things yeah. in a way that's harder to do on the radio, maybe. But yeah, yeah I, I do think that's, if not the future, it's at least the present. Yeah, I certainly uh, have enjoyed it as well. It allows you to have long-form conversations, and that's the stuff that I thoroughly enjoy. And sometimes with sports radio, you have your 12-minute segment, so you got to 
kind of hit it and you're like, oh, crap, we're getting somewhere, but we got a break because we got a, you know, traffic update or something. Exactly. And it feels so produced, right? You know, mm-hmm. we got to get in the, the elements. We got to get this in and this out. And then we got to read the lumberyard ad. You know? <laughs> Here we just keep going. It's great. We can go at infinite. Well, we appreciate it, man. I always enjoy talking with you when you come on the, uh, the, the radio show with us. And good to have you on the podcast. Really appreciated the article on The Ringer because it doesn't just speak to Jamil's situation, but also kind of the macro impacts uh, of ESPN's social media and, and, and the political elements as well. So uh, thanks for the time as always, Brian. I look forward to talking again soon, man. Always happy to talk in old and new media formats. <laughs> thanks for having me. All right, Brian. Take it easy. All right. So there it is, Brian Curtis, editor at large of The Ringer, also writer, podcast host at The Ringer, uh, joining me here on the Tim McKernan Show. Thank you to Ryan Kelly. The HomeLoanExpert.com studios is where we broadcast from. And also uh, James Carlton, of the uh, James Carlton Agency, State Farm Insurance. So a few thoughts on each of the topics Brian and I discuss. Uh, as Tony LaRusso used to say, I'd take the last one first. So we'll start with the last one first. Uh, and that is uh, The Athletic, the comments of The Athletic co-founder. Um, the comments of The Athletic co-founder are kind of neither here nor there. It, it's nothing new to see somebody... Uh, in sports media, approach a new venture with bravado. Uh, it's been going on for a few decades from my standpoint. Um, I personally wouldn't recommend it uh, if you want to be uh, cocky after you've done something. That's that's your choice. But uh, when you haven't done anything yet, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a questionable strategy, even more so... When, as Brian and I discussed, one of the ways they were trying to get their writers to get people to subscribe to The Athletic was by playing the role of the underdog and by saying they were going to do things the right way and they wanted to provide a spot for sports writers to have things done the right way. Well, if you're talking about bleeding everybody dry, is that really the quote-unquote right way but neither here nor there on that because when it gets down to it eh, you know in the whole scheme of things it's kind of it's it's words i would i would tell you this though they were words that alex mather later apologized for uh, he actually blamed on uh, having three beers before doing the interview and, and so what what i would tell you is this i was interested in doing um something similar to what the athletic is doing and by that i mean the on-demand sports writing site uh, doing it here in St. Louis, uh, similar to what DK has done in Pittsburgh. But what I worry about is the following. I think that model is probably the best bet for sports writing going forward. I really do. And I know that might seem like that's a, that's a bet that you, the listener, may not be willing to make. I think it is. I think it is. The problem that I see perhaps coming to fruition is this. If The Athletic does not succeed, the reaction of those who may be approached to do something similar to The Athletic, if The Athletic were to fail, and or those who concede, concede um, consume the content would say, well, see, it doesn't work if it fails. 
see, it doesn't work. And what I would tell you is this, is DK's been doing it for three years in Pittsburgh. But the difference between DK and the athletic is DK uh, has been a rider in Pittsburgh for a couple of decades. He knows the market and his priority is, as idealistic as it may sound, the content, the journalism. And if you focus on that, I'd like to think, if you align yourself with the proper people, the monetization can then follow. What I think, and I could be wrong, but what I think is going on with The Athletic is you have venture capitalists, and God bless venture capitalists, I'm not condemning venture capitalists, it might be good populist rhetoric to do so, but I'm all for it. You have venture capitalists getting into something that they see a void and an opportunity to capitalize on it, and it's a model that may not be executed properly out of the gate i.e. a land grab in which they're just buying up a bunch of markets and putting athletics in them and not necessarily focused on the content, but rather the land grab and then trying to use economy of scale to find their return. When in that New York Times article in which Mather is quoted, uh, it is acknowledged that the only one so far that is even breaking even, forgetting about profit, is Toronto's. And so that makes me concerned for the long-term viability of the athletic, not the long-term viability of that model. And there's a difference. So when you have one of the spokespeople for the company, a company that's still trying to find its way and get itself off the ground, saying something and going against the strategy that, from my standpoint, potentially conveys a void of quality leadership. So I wonder about that. And I worry about that because I hope the athletic is successful. And if the athletic is not successful, I hope another one of those on-demand sites is successful because I do believe that's the, the model of the future. I could be proven wrong. On the Jamel Hill topic, um, what a weird spot. If you just take yourself back even 10 years, so you're, you're going back to President George W. Bush. Can you imagine President George W. Bush sparring with pick your sports center anchor of choice or President Bill Clinton arguing with Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann or Craig Kilborn or Stuart Scott? Can you even picture it? And now it's just like it's commonplace. And it's like, oh, yeah, the Jamil Hill thing arguing uh, with President Trump. But that's where we are. And then the question is, not necessarily that, because then inevitably people are going to line up, I like President Trump, and therefore I don't like Jamil Hill, or I like Jamil Hill, and therefore I don't like President Trump, or I don't like President Trump, and therefore, by proxy, I am with Jamil Hill. Whatever it is, that's not really what I'm all that interested in getting into. What I am interested in getting into is social media policies for sports outlets. So from my standpoint, although I don't operate... Uh, 590 The Fan, KFNS, any longer. How would I handle it if one of my employees, if I were still operating 590 The Fan, KFNS, were to tweet something out similar to what Jamil Hill tweeted? How do you handle that? And how do you handle digging it down to a sports topic that would be potentially very unfavorable to something that the vast majority of the market is in support of. And if it does do damage to your bottom line, is it an idealistic approach and therefore a uniform approach or is it case by case? And that's the spot ESPN finds itself in. And I did like the line from the source and we made reference to it in the conversation with Brian about how 
ESPN isn't necessarily looking to dig down into policy. ESPN is looking to take Academy Award-style political takes, i.e. applause lines in an echo chamber. Um, So when you actually have to get into the nuance of policy and then the ramifications for uh, not necessarily getting into those and then making broad-based statements that that, uh, really turn off a portion of your audience, then what is your social media policy? And that's the spot... ESPN finds itself in. And oh yes, ESPN finds itself in the spot with Barstool. And from my standpoint on the spot with Barstool, I'm just fascinated by this. I am absolutely fascinated by how John Skipper can say over the last week, he has learned more about Barstool's content and therefore they're parting ways. There's, I mean, if, if, if this were a poker hand, I mean, I just, I would come over the top all in and go, okay, you know, I get that you got to fire a continuation bet. I understand it. That's the game. But let me just take this pot down here because I know that's not it. I also understand the weird spot that he's in, which it seems like Eric Nardini, the CEO of Barstool, is also somewhat conciliatory regarding, hell, even PFT commenter and, and Barstool Big Cat in uh, Dave Portnoy, the president of Barstool, uh, all took for, for, for Portnoy, especially the high road in the topic. Cause I think they understand the spot. Um, but what an odd line to take that he just became familiar or more familiar with Barstool's content uh, over the last seven days. That's just, you know, it, it, again, either it illustrates a lack of due diligence in advance or it's just an obvious cover up for what became absolute chaos. But I hate to say, I just hate to see, I understand it. I understand it. I just hate to see companies bowing down to social media pressure. Again, I understand it because what many of us just see as tweets, they actually can turn into dollars, i.e. dollars lost. And so from that standpoint, I get it, even if I hate it. So I'm curious, like I said, to see uh, what kind of download numbers our sports media discussion gets. I enjoy having the conversation, but if I see like 10 people listen to it, then uh, then then I guess I'll just have the conversation with with me and the sea monster because uh, I won't bore you with it. But I'd like to think that, that people are interested in these topics. And again, not necessarily the specifics of the topics, but the ramifications philosophically to how it not only applies to sports media, but to business and politics as well. If you are a fan, if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, Gary Pinkle, Jack Danforth, uh, Derek Gould on the State of the Cardinals, Clay Travis, Tioka Jackson. Um, am I missing anybody at this? John Mazzella. How can I forget the Cardinal president of baseball operations? If you've enjoyed these, thank God for the CMOS. If you enjoy these, please make sure, A, you subscribe uh, using whatever podcast platform you use, and then these things pop up automatically for you. You can listen to them whenever. Uh, but then also, uh, please uh, give us a review, ideally a positive review. I would usually go, God, that that's just the most attention-whoring thing ever, and it seems just so vile to even ask for it. But as I'm understanding these things, it actually matters uh, to helping the podcast. Uh, so it's not just something for my uh, incredibly insecure ego. So uh, if you could do that, that would be greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you for listening as always. Thank you to our sponsors, uh, James Carlton of the James Carlton Agency with State Farm and Ryan Kelly, the Home Loan Expert, thehomeloanexpert.com. We'll look forward to bringing you another podcast with the Tim McKernan Show coming up again next week. 